The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. Welcome to Yesterday and Today. Welcome. This is a Beatle podcast, a history going through the Fab Four's inception through the present day, really. And we'd like to welcome you to our inaugural episode. Thank you. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And our father, Wayne Kaminsky, has created this monster that we're about to unleash upon the world. Dad, Roar. do you have anything what? to say for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. It was a labor of love. The show is a history of the Beatles day by day. It gives you a chronological order, if you will, of yeah. things that have happened in their lives on those days throughout the years. Mm-hmm. You'll learn how songs were made, why songs were made, what type of influences there were in various songs from different bands, from different historical content. And you'll also hear music from that era as well. And this was created using your own collection. This is a compilation of audio, video, magazine sources, and all this stuff from the time itself, right? Correct. It's all my archives that I've collected. It's not for profit. It's not for sale. It's not for anything but enjoyment. I'm pleased it's getting out there to just give that chronological order and proper historical documentation of things that have happened. Right. So this is the history without all the retrospect, without all the hindsight. This is what happened at the time based on people saying it or writing it down at that moment in time. Yes. And you'll hear different specials intertwined in this special. It has nothing to do with Apple. It's just a fan as myself putting it all together day by day to get an idea of how things went. But before we begin the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about how you became a Beatle fan in the first place and what inspired you to create what we are about to hear? I became a Beatle fan way back in 1964, along with most people, watching them on the Ed Sullivan Show, hearing their music over the AM radio, their transistor radio, whereas my mom ironed in the kitchen. I used to listen to the radio as she ironed and I did my homework. Did you see the Sullivan Show when it aired live? Mm-hmm. Through a smoky haze because my dad used to smoke and lay on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and the cigarette wow. smoke just went right all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, wow, that's pretty good. Were you familiar with the band at that point? or were you? Uh... I was familiar with them through AM radio because AM radio okay. was playing them quite a bit. 
And um, WABC was the radio station along with WMCA that I used to listen to. And WABC had Scott Muni and uh, Cousin Brucey, Bruce Morrow, Ah, in New York. Who me and you saw at one point. This is true. And um, so I listened to their records and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. This is different. It's unusual. I was a little kid at that point. I was about eight years old, nine years old. And it just gave me a big impression. So since I didn't have any pocket money at that age, what I used to do is I used to uh, collect news articles from the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as the years went on, I used to do odd jobs around the house for my grandpa and my dad, and they used to give me money. So around 1967, 68 was the first time that I actually had some pocket money. And used to go to stores such as a New York or an East Coast store called Two Guys. And I used to buy their records. I remember buying their first record, which wasn't their first record, but it was my first record of the Beatles, which was the Beatles 6, which came out in 1965, I believe. Which is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this special with 65, even though 64 and earlier has been done. But it just holds a different or a more personal touch to what I, uh, or thought of what I wanted to do here. And for those of you who are coming over from me and Paul's podcast, the Third Man podcast, and you're expecting a lot of editorializing, how much editorializing will you come to expect in Yesterday and Today? How much of us talking will you get? (laughs) Dad, how many funny voices will you be doing? (laughs) There won't be any funny voices except for the voices from the time. This is a a fact-based show, and uh, what you all will be hearing is going to be records and facts from the time as told by the members and the people around them. This has taken you 18 years to create, and we're thrilled to be able to share this with more people because it's a really cool special and provides a unique insight. So James and I, I know, appreciated it over the years. It's been in our lives for a very long time. Dad, thank you for uh, contributing this to the world of podcasting. I think it's going to be interesting to a lot of people. I hope it will. I hope it will influence people to do other things. Thank you very much for tuning in. I call it a very, very cool mind movie. Keep that in perspective. It's all about the music and it's all in the mind. And with those words of wisdom, let's begin the show. It's New Year's Eve, 1964. People reflect on the events of the year, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the race riots that occurred in major U.S. cities, the first pirate radio station, Radio Caroline, aired, actress Elizabeth Taylor marries actor Richard Burton, the U.S. Surgeon General reports that smoking may lead to lung cancer, mods and rockers fight at British seaside resorts in the U.K., and the British band The Beatles premiered on American soil and captured the hearts and ears of the American youth. As I sit there in the kitchen, the time, 11.50 p.m., 51, 52, 53, the ball is dropping, 54, 55, 56, 57, 11.58, 11.59, 12 midnight, Happy New Year, 1965. Guy 
Lombardo and his Royal Canadians live from the Roosevelt Grill right here in New York to help you and us usher in this 1965. And now from the number one tune in the nation, we turn now to the number one station in the nation, the one that you're listening to right now, and we turn it over to Charlie Greer and his all-night... Yes, and a Happy New Year! Happy New Year from WABC! This is Charlie Greer at All-American 77, right on through until 6 o'clock in the morning. Happy New Year! Make your New Year's resolution is WABC! All right, now let's have a commercial just to start the new year right. You love double mint gum. Double good, double good, double mint gum. Double fresh flavor, double food too. Double mint, double delightful to chew. You love double mint gum. Get double everything rolled into one. You love double mint gum. Good job, Charlie Greer! We're having a party at 77 WABC! Oh, yes, we are the big New Year's Eve party on the Charlie Greer Show from 77 in New York City. You get a positive ho! Oh, hello there, Santa Claus. I see you still got that crazy bag on, huh, baby? Who's got them? We've got them! Who's got the Beatles? We've got the Beatles! W-A-B-O-C! Yeah! 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 I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. I'm Regal. We love W-A-B-C!
The show opened with the Mike Cotton Sounds Band performance of Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames' current hit single, Yeah, Yeah, before singer Michael Haslam joined them to sing Scarlet Ribbons. In our town, no scarlet ribbons, not one ribbon for her hair. The Yardbirds took the stage next. this show that George Harrison first met Eric Clapton. Following the Yardbirds, the Beatles performed a pantomime sketch as they came out dressed as Antarctic explorers searching for the abominable snowman. On one occasion on the show, Jimmy Savile recalls, We had to do, that's the four Beatles and myself, we had to do a sketch and uh, they were hardy mountaineers and they had little donkeys which they brought on stage much to the delight of the guys and gals there. And I was an abominable snowman dressed from head to foot in a big, hairy, shaggy-looking thing. And I captured the Beatles one by one and ate them. Well, I captured John and Paul and George. But when I went out to capture Ringo, and Ringo would turn around and do battle with me, and I would crash to the ground, and they would then... Uh, the, the end of the thing was where they would seize hold of my bear-type head and pull it off, revealing that it was Jimmy Savile, who, in Great Britain, is known for having long blonde hair and very easily recognisable. Now, this went on night after night after night, you see, and the Beatles can't stand anything going on for night after night after night, so they have to fix it up and queer it up somehow. So, <laughs> I make my appearance. Uh, you see, they've been on with their donkeys, and all of a sudden I appear over the top of this fantastic set, and I'm going, arr, arr, You see, everybody starts screaming, whereupon all the Beatles turn round, jump on me, and pull the head off. Well, this is wrong, you see, because it's now not, not the abominable snowman, it's Jimmy Savile. 
but we can't finish the sketch there and then because we've got to go. So we've got to grind through this dreadful sketch by now with everybody knowing who I am. And every time I come out to carry one of the Beatles off, everybody shouting, Get off! Get off! The first half then closed with Freddy and the Dreamers. After the dressing room and asked George how they were enjoying the show. It's great, you know, it's good fun. There's lots of people all come in, which is nice. And we're having a good time, you know, with Freddie and the Dreamers and Yardbirds and everybody. It's good. Which do you prefer mostly, doing the sketches or doing your numbers? I think doing our numbers best. The because sketches are lousy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the sketches this year aren't as good as last year's. But, you know, we didn't really have enough time to make them any better. So, but we prefer doing our act now at the end. Do you play the same numbers every time, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've caught me on the hop just having my tea here. Uh, yes, every night, same numbers, twice a night. <laughs> uh, get used to them after a bit. But uh, it's one way of learning them, you see. So it's rehearsing them, does it? Yeah. But they're all new numbers, nearly. Mm. Are you playing the ones off your LP? What? Yes. <laughs> we all keep in... Yeah. Um, yeah, we're playing some off our LP and uh, singles and things. You know, we're just mucked in and did the tunes that we think people would like to hear. Elke Brooks opened the second half, followed by a short set from Sounds Incorporated. The show finished up when British DJ Jimmy Savile introduced the Beatles. They closed the show performing 11 songs, Twist and Shout, Babies in Black, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Can't Buy Me Love, Honey Don't, I Feel Fine, She's a Woman, A Hard Day's Night, Rock and Roll Music, Long Tall Sally, and I'm a Loser.
January 7th, Brian Epstein brings over from America the folk group, the new Christie Minstrels. This is the first American act presented in the UK by Brian. A reception in their honor is held at the U.S. Embassy in London, in which Brian attends. On January 9th, the BBC TV aired the first edition of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's television variety series, Not Only But Also. Guests include singers Diane Carroll and John Lennon. Author John Lennon turns poet, giving readings on BBC. I was bored on the 9th of October 1940, when I believe the nasties were still boomingless, led by Madolf Hitler, who only had one. Anyway, they didn't get me. I attended to varicose schools in Liddypool and still didn't pass much to my auntie's supplies. As a member of the most publicified Beatles, my and PG and R's records might seem funnier to some of you than this book. For as far as I can see, this correction of short Ritchie is the best laugh I've ever read. God help and breed you all. John's segment was pre-taped from November and included his book readings of Good Dog Nigel, the Ravens, and Deaf Ted, Danuta, and me. Cynthia Lennon remembers. John had made an appearance on Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's satirical comedy show, Not Only But Also, in January 1965. He and Peter hit it off immediately and became good friends. They shared an outrageous sense of humour and a fierce intelligence. Soon after they met, Peter and his wife Wendy invited us to lunch. Their home in London's Hampstead was like something out of a glossy magazine, and as we walked in, John and I glanced at each other apprehensively. These people seemed so effortlessly perfect. Their enormous kitchen, full of copper and dried flowers, had a huge arger at one end, laden with pans of wonderful-smelling food. A long oak refectory table stood in the centre of the room, laid with beautiful crystal glasses, glistening cutlery, and a vase overflowing with casually but stylishly arranged garden flowers. The food was superb, and we had our first taste of garlic. Amazingly, it was unheard of in the Liverpool of our childhood. Dudley Moore was there too, and as we sat around the table, Pete and Dud fell into their comedy routine. John joined in putting on his thickest Liverpool accent, and as we drank bottle after bottle of expensive red wine, the afternoon descended into hilarity. At one point, John nudged me under the table and caught my eye. He grinned. This was great. When it was time to go... Goodbye, 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 goodbye
Professor Bruce Lacey. He invited Peter, Wendy and Dudley to dinner with us the following week. Sometimes we bring our friend Malcolm. On the 10th of January, American promoter Sid Bernstein phones Brian Epstein proposing to him a first in music history, a stadium rock concert featuring the Beatles. Sid Bernstein recalls, I don't want to bring him to Madison Square Garden. Where would you like to bring him? Because how big is... How big is Madison Square Garden? At that time was the old Madison Square Garden at 50th Street and 8th Avenue. That seated 17,000 people. I discussed the number of people. I said, but Brian, I want to change my mind. Instead of Madison Square Garden, I want to bring it somewhere else. Where would you like to bring them, sir? Shea Stadium. I said, uh, Shea Stadium? I said, uh, you really want to know, huh? He says, yeah. I says, uh, well, it's not Madison Square Garden, 17,000 seats. It's Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium? Stadium? Yes. How many seats? He says, how many seats? I hesitated. I have an excuse. I don't hear things sometimes. He said, how many seats? I says, uh, real long, 75,000. How many did you say? 75,000. How many did you say? I said, 75,000. He says, are you kidding? Did I hear right? 75,000? You want my guys to play to empty seats? Said, don't worry about it. I don't want any empty seats. Nobody's ever played in so big an arena in music. I said, Brian, I will give you. I sell him on the idea when I said, I'll give you $10 for every empty seat. At this point, I'm broke. He says, Sid, you were wonderful at Carnegie Hall. I take your word, but it is, isn't it not too big? I said, no. We may need more seats. You'll make a lot of $10 bills. I will owe you $10 for every empty seat. He doesn't know I don't have a dime. He says, okay. This happened once before. I came to your door. No reply. They said it wasn't you. But I saw you peep through your window I saw the light I saw the light I know that you saw me As I looked up to see your face I tried to telephone They said you were not home That's a lie
You said you were not home That's a lie Cause I know where you've been And I saw you walk in Your door On January 19th, Brian Epstein flies to New York to negotiate dates and details for the next Beatles North American tour. On the 20th, they were seen across America singing three songs on the television show Shindig. Sunday, January 24th, Brian Epstein hosts the premiere of the film Ferry Cross the Mersey by the group Jerry and the Pacemakers, which he manages. Here's Brian Epstein. Early last year, they made a film set in their hometown of Liverpool, which was called Ferry Cross the Mersey. He's going to sing now one of the title songs from this film, which is called It's Gonna Be All Right. Be alright, alright, alright 
Wednesday, January 27th, John Lennon flies to the Alps to practice skiing for 10 days. John goes with his wife, Cynthia, and producer, George Martin, and his wife, Judy. Throughout the month of January and into February, the Beatles' 65 album was number one in the U.S., and I Feel Fine, top of the singles chart in America and Britain. On February 1st in the U.K., the LP Beatles for Sale is still number one and had been for several weeks. In the U.S., Capitol Records release an extended play record titled Four by the Beatles. The EP has four songs off the Capitol Records Beatles 65 album, Honey Don't, I'm a Loser, Mr. Moonlight, and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Well, they took some honey from a tree Dressed it up and they called it me Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Woke up last night, half past four Fifth women knocking on my door Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Last night, I didn't say late For the home I had a 19 day Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Well, 
stay late For a home had a 19 date Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now Well, they took some honey from a tree Dressed it up and they called it me Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby Everybody's trying to be my baby now On Thursday, February 4th, McLenn Music Limited, the publishing company for Lennon and McCartney, is incorporated with Brian named as one of its opening directors. On February 8th, it is announced that Richard Lester is named director to the new Beatles film, which begins filming in two weeks. Here's Brian Epstein on the TV musical show Hullabaloo, interviewing Richard Lester for the viewers. Hello again from Hullabaloo, London. We've got a very special guest who's come down today. Um, and uh, the reason why he's come is to talk about four young men called the Beatles. They start work next week on their new film, and the director of that new film is the man who so very successfully directed for us last year, A Hard Day's Night. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Lester. Richard, what do you think we could tell them about the new Beatles pick? Well, first of all, it's going to be different from the last one. It will be in color. It will be uh, a film that has a lot of plot and a lot of entertainment about it. And Ringo's in trouble again. <laughs> Do you think we should say um, right away that there's not going to be any love interest? Yes, there, there's not going to be any love interest. And <laughs> Do you think that, um, that you're going to bring Ringo to the fore? Well, um, he's attacked by a tiger, if that's what you mean. I mean, it's, uh, he has a lot of problems in the film. and. Uh, the boys help him out of those difficulties. Uh, um, certainly he is in the fore, but we, we hope that the boys will be evenly spread throughout the film. They, they all will um, have as much to do. And um, The shoot- only thing is the other three are trying to save Ringo from himself. He's shooting most of it in London. Yes, and- um, a lot will be shot in London. There will be more shot in the studio because it's a more formal film than the, the last one. Um, there'll be less of a documentary feeling. There'll be a very... In fact, there's so much plot that... Um, I don't know whether we'll ever finish it or not. Uh, lots little, of new songs? Well, lots of new songs written by um, those two, you know, oh, yeah. them. Well, um, yeah. And um, a little bit will be shot in the sun um, somewhere, in, we hope, uh, on an island. I'll be there, I think. Yes, I'm trying to as well. <laughs> Dick, I hope that it's as successful as A Hard Day Tonight, naturally. And I wish you a lot of luck with it, and thanks Thank very, very much, much for coming down. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Good night. Also on February 8th, it is announced that the Beatles agreed to make another movie based on Richard Condon's book, A Talent for Loving, which will be produced by Pickfair Films. Is A Talent for Loving definitely set as your next film? About 90%. Almost. Yeah, it's almost. It's We've not... got the rights to film it, so if we don't do it, no one else will. Well, we it's got a... one copy of the book between us, so we should <laughs> <laughs> It's a drama, though, is it not? It's not going to be a comedy. It's com- a comedy, yeah. Oh, you're yeah, going to make yeah, it a comedy. Yeah. The next movie is going to be sort of a western, and um, I, I think it'll be hard for American audience to sort of try and visualise us, um, you know, cowboys. 
mean you're actually going to go out in western garb with horses and a whole bit? With guns, oh well I love guns, but you know with the holsters and the boots and the horses and everything we're going to, if, if it does turn out, see the, the next film is called A Talent for Loving. Um, up to now it can, it can change, you know, but up to now it's called Talent for Loving, which is a cowboy film and we're sort of going to be suddenly thrown into this new sort of uh, environment where we're cowboys but the thing is whether we can do it um, without causing such a shock because I think it would be terrible if suddenly the movie starts and we're all big westerns you know yeah hanging out you know a terrible American accent and um, I think we'll have to sort of do it that we arrive in America with all the baddies and the goodies and then we sort of take it gradually from the beginning that we are English and then we build up into cowboys I don't think Anyone could stand it if we suddenly, you know, leaped into the picture as, you know, Wild Bill Hickok or someone. On February the 11th, 1965, Ringo Starr married Maureen Cox, who'd been a Liverpool fan from the early days. And became the second married Beatle. Exactly one year after the group's American debut in Washington, D.C. Cynthia Lennon remembers. In January, Maureen found she was pregnant and their wedding was hastily arranged for February the 11th at London's Caxton Hall. It was a carbon copy of the situation in which John and I had found ourselves, except that this time the world's press was waiting to capture all the details. Once again, Brian did all the arranging. Maureen's pregnancy was kept secret, and to avoid publicity, the registrar agreed to perform the ceremony at 8am. Ringo, where did you propose? When or where? where? In a club. Can you tell me which club? Yes. If you don't mind a plug, the ad lib plug. <coughs> you made it up as you went to the fun. Uh, no. oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Bad joke. Hmm. No, you know, I sort of was thinking about it and I just sort of said, you know, will you marry me? And she said, yes, have another drink. <laughs> and we did, and that was it. So. Well, there you are in the photo. I'll add my congratulations. Thank you both Thanks very again. much. Add mine too. Thank you okay. very much. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Goodbye. Hope not to see you out my window again. <laughs> Paul makes a visit to North Africa and misses Ringo's wedding. Paul, where were you when uh, Ringo got married? A lot of people have been asking about that. I was in that. Tunisia, actually, Tunisia on the oh, coast yeah. of North Africa, having a holiday in a place called oh, Hammamet. And uh, it was so cut off that even when they sent me a telegram, I still didn't know. <laughs> I still didn't know Ringo was getting married. So uh, I got back about two days after it, you see. Pity. I missed it. But George and Patty, John and I went with Maureen's mother, and Ringo's mother and stepfather. Once again, Brian was best man, and after a touching ceremony, we all went back to Brian's house in Belgravia for a celebration breakfast. The newlyweds went on honeymoon to Hove near Brighton for three days. Maureen had just turned 18, and to the press appeared shy and unsophisticated. Like me, she preferred to stay in the background and give few interviews. In a brief meeting with journalists during their honeymoon, she held Ringo's hand tightly and said little. Will you come around this way? It's all right, fellas. Give us a chance. How long have you known each other? Um, about two and a half years now. So this means, Maureen, that you knew Ringo before he was right at the top of the tree. Yes. How does it feel to be... Married to a very famous man. Very nice. Well, I'm sure you wanted a rather different honeymoon from this. What do you think about all this? Well, you know, it, we took a chance. We tried to keep it quiet, and 
we tried to arrive here quite, but we must have been spotted and that's the end of it, you know, so from now on it's not really a honeymoon, it's just, we're just staying here. How do you think the other, uh, other Beatles reacted? Well, John and George were great, you know, they were happy and congratulated us and everything, and they, in fact, went to the wedding. Oh, when are the rest of you going to get married? When are the rest of them? I don't know. I've no idea. As I said before, I don't think because I'm married, next week they'll all pop up and say we're getting married because Ringo is, you know. It, what like sort that. of an effect, really, do you think the marriage is going to have on the Beatles' future? On the Beatles as a, as a whole, I don't, I don't think any great effect as as much as that everyone will sort of say, well, we can't sort of like them anymore because Ringo's married, you know. I don't think I've got that image, you know. I don't think it'll bother them too much. Well, there are a lot it of... may help, in fact, you know, we don't know yet. It's too early to say. Have you decided uh, where you're going to live? Only in the flat I've already got in London. Up to now, then we have to move and get a house or something, but it'll be a while yet. Maureen, what do you think of the flat and the furnishings? Are there any changes you'd like to make? No, it's great. Mm. It's a big flat, you know. One article said that one of the world's best-known bridegrooms had married one of the least-known brides. But that was the way Ringo and Maureen wanted it. Ringo, what do you have to yeah. say to all the uh, teenage girls who broke into tears yesterday when they heard the news? I, I don't think there was that many, actually, you know. You know, everything seems to go fine. There's only sort of, the, you know, only a few that are going off the edge. Where did you propose? Ringo? In the ad lib club. No, well, yeah, it's about two o'clock in the morning. You weren't on bended night. No, I didn't. Sorry about that. How did the honeymoon location leak out? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to find a fellow. <laughs> Does anyone know? No? Liars. <laughs> Is there any place in the world you feel you and Maureen could go when you want to be alone with her and walk outside freely? And where would that be? I've no idea. Only Vietnam. <laughs> well, how come you say you will when you won't? Say you do, baby, when you don't. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth, how is love real? But uh-huh. Well, honey, don't. Well, honey, don't. Honey, don't. Honey, don't. Honey, don't. I say you will when you won't. Uh-uh, honey, don't. And you ought to know I like the way that you wear your clothes Everything about you is so doggone sweet You got that sand all over your feet But uh-huh Well, honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't Honey, don't, honey, don't. I say you will when you won't uh-uh, honey, don't Oh, rock on, George, one time for me Right. You've been out painting the town. Uh-huh. 
our baby been stepping around But uh-uh Well, honey, don't I'm dead, honey, don't then Ringo had to get back to work. On February 15, 1965, with Ringo Starr back in London from his honeymoon, the Beatles went back to the recording studio to tackle new songs for the up-and-coming Beatles movie that still had no set name. With the songs came different recording techniques, which changed the way the Beatles and others would record in the future. George Martin sees real improvement in the Beatles' recording technique, since the band is a far cry from those very first sessions, when they first needed all the help they could get. They were very inexperienced in recording, so they left everything, literally everything in that respect to me. And, um, you know, it, it was just, uh, yes, the, this, the early sessions were very, very simple and straightforward. We didn't start indulging ourselves until a bit later. The secret was that the rhythm track would usually be taped first, and then they would overdub or drop in extra sounds onto the tape at will. In this way, they might superimpose onto an existing tape a good many unnumbered overdubs. The first song they recorded on this day took place at 2.30 p.m. Here is Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride, take one. That would. Okay. That's driving me mad. Come on. Right, George. Well, she's got a ticket to ride. I think I'm gonna be sad. I think it's the day. The girl that's driving me mad is going away. She's got a ticket to ride She's got a ticket to ride She's got a ticket to ride And she don't care She said that living with me Was bringing her down, yeah She would never be free When I was around She's got a ticket to ride She's got a ticket to ride She's got a ticket to ride But she don't care I don't know why she's riding so high She ought to think twice She ought to do right by me Before she gets to saying goodbye Sure thing twice, sure to do right by me. I think I'm gonna be sad. I think it's today, yeah. The girl that's driving me mad is going away, yeah. 
she's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride, but she don't care. I don't know why she's riding so high. She'll think twice, she'll do right by me. Before she gets to saying goodbye, she'll think twice, she'll do right by me. Said that living with me was bringing her down, yeah. She would never be free when I was around. Ah, oh, she's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride. She's got a ticket to ride, but she don't care. In 1965, it would have taken an eight-day week to keep pace with the Beatles.
a week was released as a single in the US on February 15th, the same day that John Lennon passed his driving test. John loved taking off in his Ferrari. Unfortunately, he was an appalling driver. His passengers had to suffer a hideous roller coaster ride as violent swerves caused the car to hit the curb or mount the pavement, all at breathtaking speed. Tuesday, February 16th, was the second day in the week-long period of sessions at EMI Studios for the Beatles. On this day, the group worked on George Harrison's song, I Need You. Engineers Norm Smith and Ken Scott overdubbed double-track George Harrison vocals, a cowbell, and an electric guitar, adorned for the first time on a Beatles recording with a foot-controlled tone pedal, later to be known as a wah-wah pedal. I need you. The final song of the day, which took five hours to record, was Lennon's Yes It Is. I feel there's no marks on this. One, two, three, four. Five. That's in between the verses instead of going straight on to da 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 da. It's true. You'll be handsome. One, two, three, bread. Oh, sorry, I went wrong. One, two, three, four. Yes. Five. One, two, three, four. That was wrong. Wednesday, February 17th, at EMI Studios, London, George is perfecting lead lines on a 12-string guitar. Work continues on the upcoming Beatles film soundtrack with George Harrison's song, You Like Me Too Much. You Like Me Too Much.
you've gone away this morning You'll be back again tonight Telling me there'll be no next time If I just don't treat you right You'll never leave me and you know it's true Cause you like me too much and I like you on the 18th, Northern Songs became a public company on the London Stock Exchange, making it the first song publishing company to be quoted on the London Stock Exchange. Also on February 18th, at EMI Studios London, the Beatles work on John Lennon's lovely song, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. It is very much inspired by Bob Dylan, and the song is notable for being the first Beatles recording, accepting the use of Andy White on Love Me Do back on the 11th of September 1962, to feature the work of an outside musician brought in especially for a preconceived purpose. The musician was John Scott, who was an accomplished flautist and a musical arranger. One, two, three, one, two, three. Hold on, hold on. Now, I'm just going to raise this so as it's nearer the bass strings than the top string. Paul's broken at last, broken at last, Paul's broken at last, at last, at last, he's broke today. Okay. One. Oh, you ready, Macca? One, two, three. One, two, three. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on, feeling two foot small. Everywhere. Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them say Hey, you've got to hide your love away Hey, you've got to hide your love away Can I even try? I can never win. Hearing them, seeing them in the state I'm in. How could she say to me, Love will find a way? Gather round. All you clowns, let me hear you say Hey, you've got to hide your love away Hey, you've got to hide your love away Both John and Paul spent endless hours in the spring and summer writing songs for their new album. It's a wonder how they wrote at all given their busy demanding schedules. Here Cynthia Lennon recalls John's songwriting habits at their home in Kenwood. In another room in the attic, 
a basic recording studio had been thrown together. It was usually in complete disarray, records strewn among beanbags, scribbled lyrics all over the room, recording equipment everywhere. John often disappeared there for a few hours, and later would shout downstairs, Sin, what are you doing? Come and listen to this. If I didn't get there immediately, he'd shout again, Come on, Sin, drop whatever you're doing, I need you now. Yes, sir, okay, boss. When I got to the attic, John would be desperate for an audience for his new song. I would listen and comment, trying to help when he was stuck for a lyric. I loved all of John's music, which was evolving beyond rock and roll. He was working on tracks for their fifth album, Help. John's songs were often angry, sad or challenging, but their honesty and intensity added to their appeal. I remember him writing, You're going to lose that girl, late one night, then calling me to listen. After hours locked away with his music, I'd ask, Fancy a bacon butty and a mug of tea? Perfect, you must have read my mind, he would say, and beam. John's composing never followed a pattern. He might have an idea and head for the attic at any time of day or night. I got used to him leaping out of bed in the middle of the night to write lyrics or try out a line for a song on a piano or sitting up half the night to finish a composition. Sometimes he would play the piano for hours while I sat dressmaking, keeping him company. Then there would be phone calls back and forth to Paul as they played and sang to each other over the phone. John and Paul are asked where did they find the time to write their songs. We write them anywhere. No, but we usually just sit down, Paul and I, with a guitar and a piano, or two guitars, or a piano and a guitar and a guitar. Jeff. And Jeff. Who's Jeff? Jeff. That's George. No, no, Jeff. Jeff, the singing piano. No, you know, there's just no set formula for writing. I mean, as John says, just sort of sit down and try it. See if anything comes. If it doesn't, hard lines, you know. Well, they say that all your numbers have a kind of, um, not a similarity, but they can be recognisable as the same one. So I guess you must always write more or less the same proportions each, the two of you. Yeah, just about, you know, sometimes I do much more work than Paul, but we won't mention that, will we? And on other occasions, (laughs) I write five songs in a row. John's still in his bath. (laughs) (laughs) However, I wouldn't mention... (laughs) Who writes the words? We both write both. Sometimes we write complete songs separately and just sort of make them more beatly in the recording studio. That's when they turn out to be the recognisable sort of sounds of ours or the songs of ours in the studio. After working on John's song, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, the group then worked on a song for Ringo. John and Paul wrote a fast rocker especially for Ringo to be part of the film soundtrack. The song never saw the light of day. With Ringo on lead vocals, here is the Lennon-McCartney composition titled If You Got Trouble. It was recorded on that day. If you got trouble, then you got less trouble than me. You say you're worried, you can't be as worried as me. You're quite content to be bad. Cause you're troubled, then don't bring your troubles to me I don't think it's funny when you ask for money and things Especially when you're standing there wearing diamonds and rings You think I'm soft in the head We'll try someone softer instead of anything It's not so funny when you know what money can bring 
You better leave me alone I don't need a thing from you You better take yourself home Go and count a ring or two If you've got trouble Then you've got less trouble than me You say you're worried You can't be as worried as me Content to be bad With all the advantage you had over me Just cause you're troubled And don't bring your troubles to me Ah, uh, rock off, anybody On February 20th, the Beatles, still at EMI Studios London, begin recording a new Lennon-McCartney composition to be included in the new film, which starts shooting in three days. Here is take one of That Means A Lot. That means a lot. Take one. A friend says that your love won't mean a lot. But you know that your love is all you've got. At times things are so fine And at times they're not But when she says she loves you That means a lot A friend says that a love is never true But you know that this can't apply to you a touch can mean so much when it's all you've got and when she says she loves you that means a lot love can be deep inside love can be suicide can't you see you can't hide what you feel when it's real 
says that your love won't mean a lot But you know that your love is all you've got A touch can mean so much when it's all you've got But when she says she loves you, that means a lot On February 22nd, the Beatles leave for the Bahamas. We just put it around, we're going there. We're not going there. We just put it around, we're going there. Just so everybody would think we were going there. I'd like to go there. You wouldn't like it. Where are we going then? Never you mind. Not for a holiday, but to begin filming their second movie. Called at that time, Eight Arms to Hold You. George Harrison recalls the flight from London. We smoked reefers on the plane all the way to the Bahamas. <laughs> and... <laughs> And the plane would just had, it was like a charter flight with all the film, the actors and the crew and everything like that. But we just thought, yeah, you know, nobody can smell it. We used to have mal-smoking cigars to drown out the smell of it. <laughs> and the smell was just going back in this plane, but we had fun in those days. John, how was the trip over? Did you all uh, get bored on the flight or do you have things that uh, usually keep you entertained that, that you all were doing? Well, uh, we got stoned. All right. With George Harrison right now. George, any songs in the future that are coming up that you're personally going to be featured on the vocal? Uh, well, just recently, just before we come out here, we recorded uh, a few, you know, quite a lot of songs for the film. About six or seven, actually. Yeah. For press conference. And I am singing on some of them. But we, as yet, we don't know what's going to be in the film and what's going to be on the LP or anything. Filming in the Bahamas was partially due to the fact that the group's financial advisor, Dr. Walter Stratch, had recently established their attack shelter for the group. This obliged him to live on the island for a year, and to show goodwill, it was suggested that the new Beatles film be partially shot in the British Crown Colony. Uh, welcome to the Bahamas. Thank you, Larry. How are you? It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, how does it feel joining uh, We Men of the Married Fold? It's quite good. I'm enjoying it. Uh, do you still like it? Oh, it's great. Great. You met my wife. You remember what I Yeah, I remember. Uh, did you bring your wives down with you this time? No. And tell me, do uh, you plan any trips over to the mainland at all while you're here? I don't think so. We'll be working, you know, every day, so we won't have no time. <laughs> no leisure time, right? No, because we're, we're even working weekends, you know, which we get off in Britain. The movie that uh, you folks are about to make here in part of Nassau involves you personally in a chase, if I'm not mistaken. Excuse me, yeah, that's right. It's basically a chase film. 
where somebody sends me a ring and then other people want it back. And I can't tell you too much or, you know, give it away. Thank you, Ringo. Thank you. Victor Spinetti tells about the first day of shooting. The first day was on a yacht. I was playing the mad scientist while I was cutting off Ringo's finger with his machine, but the sand was in the generator. Ringo escapes from me and dives off the yacht into the water. Here's Ringo's star. When we were doing uh, Help, we did some of the filming in uh, the Bahamas, and the Bahamas was colder when we were there than Austria. That was a bit freaky, but Dick Lester's so great, because we had one scene where I have to jump off this yacht, because they're all after me again for the ring, and I have to jump off this yacht, and I'm surrounded by sharks, which were people in shark outfits. But what Dick didn't know at the time was that I couldn't swim. So, you know, like every actor, well, you know, I want you to just dive off here, swim around and come back. So I said, you know, sweating a little. Okay, Dick, I'll do it. So Ringo escapes and dives off this yacht, 30 feet, whatever, how many meters that is, I don't know what the hell it is, down into the water. In the water I go and these sharks come and attack me. Well, it looks real, real because, uh, you know, I'm panicking so much with these sharks because all I'm trying to do is keep my head above water so I can breathe. So I'm treading these sharks into the ground. So we do this shot and they drag me back on board. Ringo shivering and everything because it was bloody cold. And so I said to Dick, uh, well, look, Dick, you know, I mean, how was it? You know, was it great? Because I want to let you into a secret. I can't swim. And the director went white. He said, why on earth didn't you tell me? But he said, well, I didn't like to say. But Dick, as a director, put his arm around me, said, well, it wasn't too great. Could we have take two? <laughs> Derek Taylor, who was at the time working for a Los Angeles radio station, interviews the Beatles during the filming. The script has been completely rewritten. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. And are you still able to put in little phrases that oh, you would yes. use? Is there a title for it yet? No, oh, no. no. Provisional what? title. What are your plans for the rest of the year, Paul? Um, as Beatles, not as individuals. We've got to... We, do, we finish the film. It takes three months to do the film. We finish it, and then I think then there's tours and things. Then we we're going on a European tour, that's in Europe, and then <laughs> then an American tour comes after that. That's later. in America. It's in America. You're yeah. right again. The Beatles wrapped up filming in the Bahamas on March 9th. So on Wednesday, March 10th, they returned to England, taking the red eye, and landed on the morning of March 11th at 7:05 a.m. McCartney. I've never been skiing. I wondered if you could write a scene in with skiing, you know. Without much rest, the band and the film crew departed London on Saturday, March 13th for the snow-capped mountains of Austria. They landed in the town of Salzburg, and after a brief press conference, they were driven to the town of Obertauern, where they were based for the next several days of filming. That's where we were. For the snow, we chose a place in Austria called Obertown, and I remember the, my, my, the first words that I had to learn to shout was hinter dem Baum bitte, get behind the trees, because w wherever we were, crowds would start appearing, and we just couldn't find an empty space in the snow. To we got to the Alps, and it was all nice walking around the snow, and then the director said, okay, get your skis on. 
And we just put them on off this mountain thing and said, okay, off you go. You know, we'd never, well, I'd never been on them in my life. John is about the only one who'd ever done it before. Honey, you just sort of slide away and your feet get tangled and everything. Said to them, have you ever skied? None of them had. I said, well, don't try it until we, we get the cameras out. We put three cameras on them and I said, now learn how to ski. There's a hill, do it. And we just filmed everything that, that happened, and it all happened for real. And if something was particularly good, we would just slightly embellish it. We pushed Dick Lester, I think, to the limit of his... because uh, he was very, very easy going. There's one scene in the film where uh, Victor Spinetti and uh, whoever else is in the scene, and they're doing that curling, <laughs> and one of them, of course, has a bomb in it. We find out about this, or it's going to blow up, and we have to run. Hey, it was so fast it's smoking. Run, Ringo! Well, Paul and I ran about seven miles. <laughs> we, we just ran and ran so we could stop and have a joint <laughs> and come back. <laughs> we were just off. You know, we'd run to Switzerland. Dick Lester knew that very little would get done after lunch. You know, the dreaded marijuana was looming very large in our lives. By then, we were smoking marijuana for breakfast at that period, and we were well into marijuana, and nobody could communicate with us because it was just four glazed eyes giggling all the time, you know, in their own world. Only in Aspinall. Who's going to be mad enough, you know, up in the Austrian Alps in the middle of winter, right, to get into this ice-cold water... Right, it's at six o'clock in the morning, right, with the sweat pair of swimming trunks on. <laughs> right. Hey, Mal, <laughs> do you fancy a gig? <laughs> you know, and he could, you know, it was like it was dangerous. Hypothermia, they just covered him in like so much grease and whatever, you know, and then when he had to do it again, <laughs> okay, take two. Oh, no. While filming in Austria, their friend Victor Spinetti, the only actor to appear in three of the Beatles' films, became ill. I had flu, and I was in bed, and the Beatles visited me, because we were all staying in the same hotel. Each one visited me separately, and the way they visited me when I had flu is really what they're like. Knock the door. Paul McCartney opens the door and looks round and says, Is it catching? I said, yeah, and he closed the door. George Harrison walked in and said, um, I've come to plump your pillows because whenever you're ill, people plump your pillows, you see. So he came and plumped me pillows. You know what plumping the pillows mean? And tidied the sheets and made me comfortable. John Lennon walked in and said, you are in the state of Austria. You are going to be experimented upon by the doctors and your skin will be made into the lampshades. Heil Hitler! And walked out. Ringo walked in, didn't say anything, sat down by the side of my bed and picked up the menu that's always there at the side of the bed, right? Opened the menu, looked at me and said... <clears throat> Once upon a time, there were three bears, mummy bear, daddy bear, and baby bear. And that's the essential difference between the three of them, four of them. When you're up in Vienna, uh, you know, in Austria, near Ogerbrangen, wherever you were there, did you get the weekends off? No, no, what? We, uh, no, no, we, we didn't. Worked, worked. 
But you've got to realise we have to work on locations, you see. Yeah. yeah. Even on Sundays? Even, even on, on a Sunday. Sunday. What do you mean, even on Sundays? Especially what? Sunday. The group departed Austria on March 22nd for London, where they resumed filming throughout the end of the month. Coming up in a moment, there are royal honors from the Queen. Ringo hasn't told his mum yet. John Lennon writes another book. What actually, though, had you read that you, that you know was important to you when you were young? Only kids' books, you know. Alice in Wonderland. They make one last English appearance. And the group devotes more time in the studio. And on this side of the set was a Hammer Morgan. And Paul just switched it on and he said, listen to it, I play it very quietly while they're working up the other end of the studio. And uh, uh, this is a new melody that I've got, and we haven't worked on the lyric yet. And he played me the melody, and I said, well, that must be one of the greatest tunes I've ever heard. Next on Yesterday and Today. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying.